words. I invite you to remain, remain seated for a more extended reading of God's Word. Judges chapter 17 and 18. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, uh, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, uh, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord for my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, the mother took the 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. The man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. And I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levites, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So, the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtal, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go, explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, and they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security, after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far away from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. 
And when they came to the brothers at Zorah and Eshol, their brother said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. Will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So, 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtol, and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, the place is called Menahadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim, and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in those houses there are an ephod, household gods, carved image, and a metal image? Now, therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now, the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said, uh, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand in your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man, or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Don't let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they built the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan after the name Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. 
So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. This is the word of the Lord. Well, would you please uh, join with me before we go any further to consider this you know, really straightforward passage. Let's, let's pray. Father, uh, your word is always good. And your word is often surprising and even at times bewildering, and that oftentimes is what is needed for us. So we pray, Father, that you would help us to hear, um, help us to understand what you want us to understand, that you would renew our minds and our hearts, that you would lead us to Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, it seems to me that it at least feels like right now, as a society, we are in a time of crisis, uh, where it feels like kind of things are, are, are pulling apart at the seams. I wonder if it feels that way to you. Certainly, that's the vibe that we get whenever we look at the news. It feels like one story of political corruption or controversy after another is only occasionally interrupted by horrific, unthinkable stories of shootings that have become so common that they're almost not unthinkable anymore. A number of surveys have, have told us that trust of each other is at an all-time low and, and optimism for the future is low, and meanwhile, suicides and drug deaths have increased significantly. And troubling for those of us who believe that the hope of the world is found in the gospel, a number of studies have been saying recently that within the last 25 years we have seen an exodus from churches that are bigger than anything our nation has ever seen before. It feels like things are falling apart. It feels like we're in a crisis. Whether we're in a crisis or not, only history will tell us. But doesn't it at least feel that way a little bit? When we are against kind of situations where we don't know what to do with, it's oftentimes helpful, I think, to kind of look to see if there are times that people have faced something like this before. I know that we're told that we learn history so that we don't make the same mistakes, but sometimes it's inevitable that we'll make the same mistakes. But at least when we do, we can look back and see when those mistakes were made at another time to try to understand more. So you think about like about 15 years ago where there was the, the Great Recession, and what did people do? They looked back at the stock market crash and tried to figure out what commonalities are there. Or more recent, when we were trying to navigate the enormous complexities of COVID, there was a lot of talk about what happens during the flu outbreak about 100 years earlier. There can be some value sometimes if we can know that people have faced something like this before to at least understand a little bit more about what is going on and perhaps even to begin to understand what is the way out. And it's for this reason, at least one of the reasons, that it is valuable for us, I think, to spend some time in the book of Judges. For as, as Nick pointed out earlier, it is one of the darkest books that we have in the Bible. Um, it, it gets bleak, especially near the end, because... Because what you have here is a people in crisis where their society is just utterly falling apart. I mean, every chapter in Judges from the beginning to the end spirals further and further outward until when you get to the very conclusion, it seems impossibly bad, like there is no way forward for God's people. And yet, 
Of course, there is. They do survive. There is a way through it. And so, in a very subtle way, there is a hopefulness about Judges where it says, this is what was going on, but it also nods, and here is the solution. This morning, as we're just beginning the series, I want to just kind of let you know ahead of time, while we are going to be looking at a lot of things in chapter after chapter throughout the weeks that will have these very practical applications, this morning, I want us to spend less time thinking about what are things that we should do and more time allowing, allowing judges to frame our understanding so that we can understand what is happening and what's the solution. So first, that question, what is happening? What is going on? My guess is that is almost exactly the question that you were having in your head when we were reading chapters 17 and 18. What is going on? It, it's, it's a bizarre couple of chapters, right? And, and if you have read through Judges before, you will know that if you were to keep going, which we won't doing both for time and also because this is not PG material, 19 through 21 gets even worse. I mean, you have a story of rape, bodily dismemberment, horrific, like, genocide, like, civil war, sex trafficking, and all of that is happening not amongst the outsiders. That's God's people who are doing that to each other. And, and the question that we're supposed to be asking throughout is, what is happening here? And yet at the same time, we are being told, we are given a clue so that we can understand what is going on in 17 verse 6, where it says, in those days... There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is not just spoken here. We see kind of an echo of it in the beginning of chapter 18, another echo a little bit later, and then the very conclusion of 21 is the exact same verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The point we're supposed to say is, here's what's going on. We want to show you, the writers and the editors of Judges want to show us, this is what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Which is an interesting way of putting it when you think of it. This is not a description of, a, of an immoral society that does not care about doing what is right. This is a description of a people who are in many ways well-intentioned. They are wanting to do what they believe is right, but the way that they are navigating it is not by what God tells them, but what, by some external standard. They are wanting to do what is right by their intuition, by their understanding, by what is right in their own eyes. We are meant to understand this is a picture of what happens when that's what governs a society. Now, our passage will, will kind of move in three scenes, and in some ways the focal point is going to be this one strange fellow by the name of Micah, someone who seems to probably be middle-aged because he both has kids and a mom who's living with him, who's living more in the countryside, seems fairly wealthy, and the, the one thing that we're especially supposed to notice is he, in some ways, is an architect. He is a picture of what it looked like in that time to live in a way where they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And as we follow his story, we're meant to see certain things. So we'll begin with scene one, where things set things up in 17 verses 1 to 6. Um, and from the very get-go, I think we're, we're meant to be disoriented by just the strangeness. I mean, 
the story, it seems, is, you know, there's a mom who is really upset for understandable reasons. 1,100 pieces of silver, that's like five to six million dollars in modern day. This is a big sum, has been stolen. And so she is so angry, she sets a curse upon whoever stole it. She, she brings down judgment and damnation and prays for the demise. And like in the middle of it, suddenly Micah has an awkward conversation with her and says, um, Mom, that was me that did that. And, and suddenly, it's like she turns on a dime and is like, blessed be my son to the Lord. It's just this really bizarre change. But it's interesting to notice, to the Lord. The, 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 you might notice that the words are in capital. L-O-R-D is, is the way that we, in, in English Bibles, will depict the fact that they're using the name Yahweh. So from the get-go, we were meant to understand that these are people who are not pagans. They, at least by name, hold to the true faith. I mean, perhaps if we were to make it in modern day, we would, you know, this would be like someone would be saying, praise Jesus. I mean, not only does she praise the Lord, but she also plans to dedicate the 1,100 pieces of silver to the Lord. And, and even Micah's name means, who is like Yahweh? So on one hand, this has the appearance of a pious people who earnestly desire to pre- please the true God, except what does she do when she is so excited? She's like, I'm going to dedicate the silver to the Lord. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to make an idol of him. That will make God so happy. And Micah is thrilled. Like Micah is like, hey, this is the most, the most exciting thing that's ever happened in my life. Now I know what to do with my backyard shed. I'm going to make it into like a, a, a personal worship pavilion. And so he kind of makes a couple other little gods and he puts them there in an ephod. And then he puts, puts this new silver statue of, of the Lord in there. And he realizes something's missing. He needs a priest. So he, like Junior has never been that good at farming. Let's ordain him. So he has like this backyard ordination of the priest. Now he has a priest who's overseeing it. And he is just so thrilled with everything that's happened. And then we finally get kind of this refrain that we see a couple times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's meant to orient us towards something that should be utterly disorienting. Because if you know anything about what matters to God, if you know anything about what he has said about how to please him, you will know that this is not it The first thing God says in his Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. The second one is, and you shall not make a likeness. And this is what they do in order to please God? See, here's what I think we're meant to see from the very get-go. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes, we see people exchanging a true relationship with the true God for religiosity, for something empty. God does not want us to represent him on our own terms because he knows the moment we do that, we will shrink God to fit him in the way that we're comfortable with. No longer will he be a God who is the true God who can speak to us and confront us. He's the God who can make us feel better. This this true relationship to religiosity, there is still an earnest desire for spirituality. There's still an earnest desire to connect to transcendence. But it's a desire on our own terms where in the end it's just empty sentimentality and not knowing the true God or being able to hear him. And when we have made it impossible to hear the true God, devastating things take place. And that's what happens as we continue on to our our second scene. So our second scene, another person enters 
the story. Uh, a, a Levite, uh, who we will later discover is named Jonathan. And if you might know, Levites were the ones, the tribe that were especially appointed to be the ones who did priestly or religious activities. And this Levite, for reasons that we don't fully understand, just happens to be kind of wandering in the area. And, and Micah discovers that Levites, a, a Levite is in his house and he is thrilled because he seems to have had at least enough of a recollection of God's law to remember that a Levite priest is, well, more legit. And so, like, in, in this kind of moment of euphoria, he, he can't quickly enough grab a contract, shove it in front of the person's, Jonathan's face, give him a pen, and say, hey, here is the deal of your lifetime. And, and, and Jonathan the Levite looks at the contract, 10 pieces of silver and a living, and he looks at the, you know, personal worship pavilion over there, and he shrugs his shoulders, you know, man's got to eat. And he signs the dotted line, and now he is the official Levite priest of the Micah Worship Center. And, and, and notice how, like, Micah interprets things at the very end. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So, so again, this is not an example of someone who thinks he's doing something wrong. He's convinced that he is doing everything right to make sure that God will rain down his blessings upon him. And yet he is so utterly wrong. I mean, this is that false religiosity. This is that emptiness where spirituality doesn't actually mean that he's connecting to the true God. But there is another piece that I think subtly we're, we're meant to recognize. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes, it also starts really affecting human relationships. I mean, we already saw this in the beginning, didn't we? In the first few verses, I mean, what kind of son robs his mom of six million bucks? But then we see it here as well. Do you remember, like, so the Levite has now been, you know, personally ordained by Micah, what happened to the previous guy? Remember Junior? Like, Levite now was like a son to him. What happened to his own son? He's just removed from the scene. He's gone. He can be cast away when you've got a better model. And actually, what we see here in subtle ways, if we were to continue in 19 through 21, we would see again and again that, that this posture of doing what is right in one's own eyes becomes like an acid to every human relationship that it touches. We see a husband treating his wife like an object. We see a tribe putting tribal loyalty over justice, allowing people who have done horribly wrong things to be protected. We see a perverse legalism that ends into this civil war. Again and again, we see an impossibility of people functioning together in the way they are meant to. And if you think about it, it makes Sense when people do what is right in their own eyes, of course it's going to affect how human relationships function. Because what is right is not just a set of rules, it's not just a set of personal preferences. What is right is, is something real. It's, it's about the way that humans need to live together. Imagine, this is an illustration, imagine if um, when it came to, to driving, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You might say, it's Chicago. I don't have to imagine. But, but let's kind of like take it to the next level and imagine that someone decided, you know what? A red light means go as fast as I possibly can. Or a school zone means this is a drag strip. If, if, if everyone does what is right in their own eyes, it will not take long before accidents occur because there needs to be some sort of external standard of how we function together. 
And, and with human relationships, that how, is how it works. You cannot have trust without truth. You, you cannot have harmony without justice. You cannot have true connection without love. There is a right that is just right, whether it's in our eyes or not. And when we get disconnected from it because we just go inward, of course human relationships will suffer. Of course there's going to be a lack of trust. This is what happens when people do what is right in their own eyes. So we then get to the third, final, lengthiest, most confusing scene. We won't touch on all the details, but what we do know here is that a tribe now enters the scene, the tribe of Dan, a tribe who to this point has not been successful or even perhaps tried very much to take hold of the specific area that God gave them. The, the nations that they have to deal with are too frightening, so they're sending spies to find an easier picking city. And so these spies, as they are journeying, just so happen to come across Micah's home. They don't actually end up meeting Micah. They meet Jonathan the Levite. And, and they're like, how did you get here? And Jonathan the Levite basically said, hey, I was given an offer I couldn't refuse. And you can almost just hear the undertone of, unless I get a better offer. So the spies actually decide to kind of give him a test run. And they say, hey, here's what we wanted to do. Can you tell us what God says? And Jonathan's no dummy. He knows exactly what they want to hear. He's like, go in peace. God is with you. And so they go, and they find a city that is completely unprotected. Not one of the ones that God told them to take, but who cares? They go back to their own people, the people of Dan. They start traveling, and along the way they say, oh, by the way, you know, there happened to be this, this shrine with gods and a Levite. We should think about that. And the Danite generals and leaders take the hint and send the spies to go to Micah's home. And the spies go, and they start kind of collecting the stuff that's there. And Jonathan's like, what's going on? And they're like, hey, let me put to you a question. Would you rather be in charge of one person's or in charge of an entire tribe's worship? And Jonathan's like, Good point. And so he goes with them, and he actually collects the rest of the gods and all of those like different statues, and they start kind of moving forward. And Micah must have been sleeping or something, but whatever happens is when Micah wakes up, he then grabs every able-bodied man, and, and they chase after as quickly as they can to catch up with this tribe that's taken his own personal worship pavilion. And, and finally, when they get close, they start just kind of like yelling, hey, hey, hey. And then and the people of Dan start kind of almost complaining, and they ask, so uh, what's the matter with you that you come with such company? And, and it's almost like Micah just starts whining, right? I mean, he's like... You take my gods, I made, and the priest, and go away, and what if I left? I mean, if you look at what he says, and he keeps on talking about these, how can you say what's the matter with you? He never says, what you did is wrong, because he can't. Because in those days, everyone's just doing what is right in their own eyes, so all he can do is just, just protest. And, and, and what do the, the Danites do in response? It's like, I don't know if you caught this, but it's like, ancient mob boss language. You know, you better keep quiet. You know, we understand why you're a little upset, but there's some guys in our group who are a little rough around the edges, and I can't stop them if they want to kill you. And, and Micah looks at all of the swords around him and looks at the size of the army and realizes there is absolutely nothing he can do. So he goes away empty-handed, completely 
shamed, I suppose you could say. And here again, I think we're meant to see something important. That when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, ultimately right really doesn't mean much. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes, what ultimately makes the difference is who has the most money and who has the most power. The Levite will make all the pretenses of being a worship leader and being loyal, but when he's offered a better contract, he knows where he's going to go. Both Micah and the Danites will speak about wanting to please God and serve Him, but in the end, what really will make the decision about what should be done is who has the most swords. Those who are vulnerable will be exploited, and they will. As I said, if you continue on through the last three chapters, you will see human beings treated like objects and those with power getting to decide what is right and what is not, because that's what happens when people do what is right in their own eyes. What we have here is something both tragic and absurd. The people of Dan, who at least ostensibly are engaging in a holy war for the Lord, end up taking a city and an idol stays there for the rest of the time. A Levite, who is the grandson or perhaps great-grandson of Moses, the great lawgiver, is lawless in the way that he seeks to interact. And Micah, who had, who had done everything to try to guarantee that the Lord would bless him, ends up being destroyed by the very thing he put his hope in. Everything is turned upside down when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And I wonder, as we are just kind of like working through and allowing judges to help us to see if we're making any connections a society where, where the weak can do nothing more than protest and those who are powerful and wealthy ultimately get to decide what is right at times, exploiting the poor, the unborn, those in sweatshops. Sounds familiar. A society where humanity is having a harder time holding together, where relationships and families and trust is torn apart. Yeah, I think we know that. A society where personal preference for what they feel like God should be like is what's determinative, and the ability to actually hear and know the true God is erased. I think we see that. What Judges is inviting us to see is that when we are seeing things pulling apart, at least part of what we're supposed to recognize is that this is what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. So that raises the question, if this is what happens, is there a way out? And if so, what is it? You would think that the way out, if, if the problem is a lawlessness of people just kind of doing their own thing, that the, the answer is just bring more rules to the table. And if you think about it, that's actually how our society in general has responded, where we see a problem, regulation. So when people were doing what was right in their own eyes with financial investment, we need more regulations. When, when we have found deep issues with power abuse, whether we're talking about sexual abuse or racism, we, we institute all sorts of DEI regulations. The solution to our problems where people are doing what's right in their own eyes is just giving us more rules. 
color me skeptical. And it's interesting that that's not the solution that Judges invites us to consider. Of course it doesn't, because what Judges would say is, we don't need any more. We have already been given God's perfect law. The problem is not that we need more law. The problem is that we need a different kind of leadership. Notice again the line that I say is the key to this. That's repeated in different ways. In 17 verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do you see the connection? There is a suggestion that a key part of this is there is not yet a king. It's perhaps helpful to understand at this point that in those days is likely indicating that this book is finally constructed in its final form centuries later to a people, the Jewish people, who at this point were probably in exile. And so they would know that as bleak as things look at the end of Judges, that this isn't the final part of the story. That as impossibly bad as it looks, where everything is tearing apart, where it seems like there is no hope for God's people, they know what will come next. That what will come next eventually is a special kind of king, that God will raise some young shepherd boy, David, who will, despite all other appearances unite all 12 tribes and, and bring peace and justice and, and connect people to God through a true worship of Him because in every way, well, not every way, but oftentimes, He is seeking to bring God's people faithfully under God's law. And the reason this would be important for the people in exile who are receiving this story that seems so bleak but has this note of hope is because they were in a very similar time. They had gotten where they had to this time of exile because people had done as they saw fit. And they were in a moment where there was no longer any king. And yet what Judges gently is reminding people is, but a king, the right kind of king, can make all the difference in the world. And, and if, if people kept reading to, to Samuel, they would be reminded again that there is this promise that God has, that there will be a king, not just like David, but a king who will be even greater than David, that he will send to his people. And so, even in the midst of the bleakest moments of exile, God's people could hope, because if God's appointed king comes, it can make all of the difference in the world. And the Christian gospel is, of course, that that king has come. That Jesus, when he conquered sin and death, when he rose from the dead in victory, when he ascended to God's right hand, his reign began. And this king, greater than David, though he is the son of David, not only has the ability to to remind people of God's laws, he has the power to connect people to God and to change their very hearts and make them right. And we're seeing actually a picture of this. This is in some ways the, the inverse image of Judges when we get to Acts chapter 2, when after Jesus has ascended and people bow the knee to Jesus and confess Him as Lord and are baptized, what do we see happening? We see relationships being brought back together where there's harmony and sharing. We see the poor being cared for by, by the strong. We're seeing a deep, passionate praise for God and delight in the true God. And why? The reason is because they have a king. 
And that king is Jesus. And that king is able to make all things right. And it's here where, while I think it's been helpful for us to compare our situation with judges, that we have to recognize that we are in a different place. Because we do not say in our day there is no king. Because our king has come. We're in a time where there is an enormous amount of anxiety. And it's understandable for the reasons that we've already articulated. And it seems to me that oftentimes the, the way that people are responding to anxiety is to try to just kind of exert more control. How can we get the right guy in power? How can we get the right rules in place? How can we just settle things down? And while I understand that response, I want to suggest to you that it is utterly wrong-headed. Not that there is no place for political action, but that is not the solution. Judges tells us the solution is found in the king. And so it's also important for us, even as we're talking about the story that we're feeling, the story of it seems like things are falling apart, to recognize there is another story that is taking place at the very same time that is actually the more real story. It's not just in America, it's, this, it's the story that we hear when we've been talking about Haiti, and even though it seems like Haiti is falling apart, yet we hear about things being rebuilt and good things taking place. Or, or the story in China, where even if we hear about suppression, we also realize that there are people who are holding to the name of God. And it's a story that we actually hear, not, not through the news, but throughout our country in small pockets, oftentimes so small that they never get in the press. But pockets of people where lives are being changed, where, where relationships are being rebuilt, where, where those who have more are giving to those who have need, where there is a true and delighting knowledge in God. It is happening. I know it's happening because I see it here. And why is it happening? Because, because there is a king whose reign is such that he is able to lead us out of slavery to doing what we think is right into the glorious freedom of children of God, of knowing the true God and being brought into what is truly good. It's, it's what we confessed in, in those words that Luther invited us to confess. I'll just return to them because I could not say them possibly better. We believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father in eternity, and also a true human being, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. He has redeemed me, a lost and condemned human being. He has purchased and freed me from all sins, from death, from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. He has done all this in order that I may belong to him, live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in eternal righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he is risen from the dead and lives and rules eternally. This is most certainly true. And this is where the way out is to be found. We'll spend time in future weeks, we'll even spend time in our congregational meeting talking about what that means, but I just want to say, wherever the solution is, it's always going to begin and end with Jesus, our King. And so, as we conclude, I invite us 
to respond simply by turning to him in our hearts to bow our knee to him where it is appropriate for us to confess ways that we have not served him and, and bring all of our needs before him and acknowledge him once again as our king who is able to save. Let's spend some time in prayer and confession and I'll lead us in a couple minutes time in prayer.